Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning, and today my guest is Peter Grunwald, who's an Alexander Technique teacher who lives in Auckland, New Zealand. He's been a teacher for about 25 years, and for the last 20 years or so, he has been uh, exploring the connections between the Alexander Technique and vision, vision, vision re-education. He's become quite well known in the Alexander world for his uh, his workshops uh, on vision and the technique. And we've had one conversation where we've talked sort of generally about what he does on those workshops, how the, some of his early discoveries about uh, vision and uh, and the and the technique. And we're going to have a follow up conversation where we're going to maybe cover a number of different areas, perhaps going a little deeper into some of his discoveries. And um, we'll, we're, it's going to be a bit of an experimental conversation, but but we're going to give it a shot. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, Robert. Wonderful to be back here again. Good to have you back. Um, so, Peter, uh, just before we get into the meat of what we're going to talk about, for our listeners who who are not familiar with the Alexander Technique, could you give give us a short description of the technique? Yes, Alex, um, Alexander was, I think, really a genius. He discovered how to undo unnecessary habits uh, which were really re- uh, ruling his, uh, let's say, his brain and his body motions. And he was really able with, uh, with mental um, inhibitions and directions to overcome um, his, his speech um, and, his, uh, and his physiology in a way which does not really support his day-to-day living. Right. That and might be one answer, and one can have many different answers sure. how to explain the Alexander Technique. And, the, and when we talk about inhibition, it's really important, I think, to make it clear to our listeners that this has nothing to do with Freudian inhibition. Exactly. It's an unfortunate uh, accident of history. Uh, actually, Alexander came first with the phrase, but yes. Freud became more famous. And, <laughs> Uh, but Alexander inhibition just means um, um, saying no to something you don't want, but it has nothing to do with repression or yes. that sort of thing. So in our earlier conversation, you uh, described uh, some of your early experiences and discoveries of connections between uh, aspects of the eye, the cornea, the retina, and so on with uh, parts of, of the rest of our body and how you ultimately found a kind of a, I, I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, but a kind of a controlling mechanism in the back of our, back of the, of our heads, basically, back of our brains that really um, directs both vision and everything else, kind of a, a super directing area, I guess you could yes. say. And after we finished our conversation, you said, but there are some other things that we we could talk about as well related to this. So I'm going to give it over to you right now to to lead us in those directions. Good. Thank you very much, Robert. Um, 
I guess um, I've got a chart here in front of my eyes and um, and I'd just like to uh, take the listeners on a tiny little journey, almost like inside our brain. Because if we talk about vision, we talk about light waves entering the eye and the light waves are 186,000 miles per second or 300,000 kilometers per second. So our cars. 100 kilometer per hour, so, um, so it's really, really fast. So the light waves are coming already through what I call the etheric layer, which is the first layer of the auric field. And the light waves are coming, which has lots to do with safety. Light waves are coming through the cell structures of the cornea, through the aqueous humor fluid, through the lens, through the vitreous humor to the macula. So it's almost like light waves have to go through structures and fluids to come to the entire retina and to the macula itself. And from there, the information is literally in really fast going through the brain, through the thalamus, which is the overall coordination for brainstem and spinal cord. And it goes through the visual radiation into the lower visual cortex, which are synapses found within the lower region of the visual cortex, which is roughly above the neck area. And I'd like to come to the neck area into this region in a moment. And in this higher region of the visual cortex, I was saying just before in the previous interview with you, that in the higher region of the visual cortex, I discovered there is an overall coordination, an energetic overall coordination, which coordinates the three brain layers and the physiology of the eye. And I think we are all born with the potential of coordination, yet all those seven billion people, but there seem to be um, somehow an aspect in us which we are, where we are not really recognizing our coordination or we are stopping ourselves to really use the potential. In, so in, 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 would you say in a, in a way that's analogous to the way that we're not realizing our potential when we tense our necks and our, the quality of our movement through space is compromised? Or does it have a, a different, is there more to it than that? No, I think it's that. I think we have got the potential, we have got the synapses, but we are not using it, just like we are not using the full potential of our arm movements or our lower back, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the same thing relates to the brain itself, too. That we may be, I mean, as Einstein was saying, that we may use only 10% of our brain. So mm-hmm. I guess if we are using only 1% more of our brain, our life would look already so totally different. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here I promote or what I discovered through my Alexander applied to vision work that I discovered there lies an extraordinary potential for synapse function within the higher region of the visual cortex, which from my understanding has got the direct potential of coordinating our function of brain, function of fluid and structures of the eye and the physical body in a in a lengthening, widening, in a efficient way at the same time. And and is that in your experience and in your view a complement to 
uh, say, Alexander's primary control, where he was talking about the head-neck relationship. Do you see it as a complement to that or something that, in a sense, almost supersedes that? Um, I think Alexander was really a genius in his time to discover principles which are applicable in every moment in life. I think at that time, over 100 years ago, the brain was not really on the agenda, so to speak. <laughs> yes, the brain mm -hmm. wasn't really uh, part of what we talked about. it, And only, with, only in the last 15 years or so, or 20 years with technology, suddenly the researchers find out so much more about the brain and everybody talks about the brain. So the eye in itself could not see the eye without the brain can't do very much. So it's actually the brain, the heart drive in the brain itself, which will allow that the physiology of the eye can function. And I like to come to a point that I'm not habitually using my, my brain, my eye, or my body, but that I can come out of consciousness and can direct, can instruct my brain and my fluid and structures in such a way that light waves can come unhindered through the fluid and structures of the eye to stimulate the lower visual cortex with clear-sightedness. So clear-sightedness would be a byproduct out of coordination. And what we usually tend to do is no coordination and we end game to see the letters in a book or to see the far distant tree without using an overall uh, mechanism which allows brain-eye-body to coordinate in such a way that light waves can come unhindered into the eye, into the brain to, to stimulate clear-sightedness. So, so to, to just elaborate on what you said or put a little different spin on it, Alexander, of course, was totally aware of mind-body connections. Yes. In fact, he, his take on that was that mind and body are just two aspects of the same thing. But as you say, back in the 1890s when he was developing his work, there was no mapping of the brain of the kind that we have today. I'm guessing it was pretty primitive, whatever it was. And yes. now we know an awful lot more about the internal mapping of the brain. So could it, of the, of the brain itself, yes. the, the physical uh, organism of the brain. Yes. So... Is it would it would it be a fair description of your work to say that you're basically applying Alexander principles yes. to how our brain functions, which exactly is not that. something that Alexander would have probably thought of, thought about, given that yes. given the state of knowledge at the, uh, yeah. when he was alive. I think Alexander just did not think yet about this. Because no, but he, it was but not, he did not, know. One thing Alexander did know for sure yes. is that people were going to make a lot of important discoveries after he died. He was really <laughs> clear about that, that he, he never, ever set himself out as exactly. saying, this is it. And um, he, he used phrases like, I, I hope someday my work will be seen as a signpost for those who follow in my footsteps, that yes. sort of thing. Yeah, now, interesting. 
if I think about the brain and the evolution of the brain, I think out um, we have got um, from my from my in my jargon, so to speak, we have got three brain layers, and that makes this easier for the listeners to understand. The first brain layer would be the thalamus and the hypothalamus, which would be the coordination of brainstem and spinal cord, like really like a reptilian brain. And out of this reptilian brain, the first layers through the optic nerve developed, which I think developed the inner layer of the eye. There was like no, um, there was almost like the eye, which uh, as a uh, reptile, we had to see uh, the peripheral um, vision to see if somebody gobbles me or who can I eat? Who, mm. who will eat me? Who can I eat? There was a real basic part of the eye and basic brain. Now, when the next brain developed, um, it's a limbic brain which wraps around the, the thalamus and the brain stem, which was, became the emotional and, and the social and emotional brain, where I think where all our sensory impulses are going in, hearing and smell and touch and the kinesthesia, but as well where our mental thoughts are going through, where our short-term memories, like memories for the last hundred years are going through, but lo- and long-term memories, like cell memories, DNA memories, our uh, memories from our uh, last seven generations, and, and those things. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think the overall coordination at that time with this second brain was something about feeling and sensing. Mm-hmm. And when we and 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 when we develop then our latest brain, our neocortex brain, then where our where our consciousness, where our um, where our um, conscious thinking um, happens in nowadays, um, um, where uh, um, I think um, each time each latest brain had an overall coordination. When we had no neocortex, only the reptilian and the limbic brain, then the limbic brain had had um, the overall coordination. And it's almost like in nowadays we are transiting from this reptilian and limbic brain to our neocortex with the overall coordination, which somehow seemed to be the intent for seeing, the intent for vision. Now, if we, and I'm not saying we do at the moment, but if we would be growing a fourth brain layer, then I think the overall coordination would need to be at the end of the fourth layer. Mm-hmm. And then vision would not be the, the overall coordination. And I think where we, are headed, where we are at the moment worldwide is transiting out of this doing mode from the limbic brain, our emotional and, and, and reacting to what rises there by out of the intent for presence, which I... Which I which my slant of inhibition of stopping interfering what naturally arises and out of this presence staying with the intensity as well with the emotional intensity which rises and knowing we don't die from this emotional intensity, mm-hmm. at least not now, maybe right. in the past we did, but not now. Mm-hmm. And then it transforms into essences which we are connecting with our overall coordination, which we have got at this time in our brain's evolution. Well, you know, it's interesting getting back to Alexander for a second. Yes. Uh, the title of his first book, written yes. around in the early 20th century, 
man's supreme inheritance. Yes. And um, I, I think most, I, I assume that most Alexander teachers would see that as our our ability to, often untapped, but our ability to consciously bring about changes in our yes. patterns of behavior. Yes. And um, it sounds a bit to me like that's that third layer, right? Yes. That um, is sort of designed, in a sense, to be in charge of the whole system. Yes. And I think Alexander, um, maybe he didn't refer to this, but I think he came very much from that positions of from from that thinking from from or with this vision in mind mm-hmm. and right. maybe in nowadays with more brain research we can maybe explain this a little bit more well it it is interesting this is kind of a little off uh, topic but i think it's 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 intriguing that in the last um oh certainly the last 10 years last 10 to 20 years uh, a lot of research in the field of um, neuroscience yes. has seemed to be quite congruent with certain Alexander technique ideas. And recently, um, actually, there have been some pretty interesting uh, scientific studies conducted in, in the UK uh, measuring uh, things like postural tone and gait and things of that kind yes. where um, where for the first time you have um, and studying the effects of Alexander lessons on those things um, that have shown that the, that the Alexander technique uh, can directly affect those phenomena not, it's, it's not about getting people's impressions of what's going on, it's actual very precise measurements of what's going on, and uh, that, yes. it's just—I mean—I think there's a whole series more experiments uh, planned in, uh, by the same investigator, and I believe there's uh, there are other people who are starting to work in that field. But it does a little bit tie in with what you're talking about—that is, Alexander's understanding, even though he didn't have the brain mapped. Yes. He couldn't have had it mapped, but his basic understanding um, um, is relevant for that mapping, for our Very use much for so. our use of that mapping. Let's say exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really helpful what he discovered at that time and applying it. I mean, he was a very practical person. Yes, um, of applying. I mean, it, it's really great to have the understanding of the brain, but it really takes another aspect, and that's where Alexander's work is so important, of having a, a, a mindfulness practice, which I'm able not only in a formal way, but in an informal way to apply this in my day-to-day activities so that really more synapses in my brain and in such a way freedom within the physiology of eyes and the musculature, but the physiology of the entire body can be really practiced in activities like um, eating and driving mm-hmm. and, and reading and computer work so that, that our brain synapses into our old, old age can really function uh, more and more efficiently. 
Mm -hmm. And I we're kind of running out of time, uh, Peter. But I just can't resist mentioning something we we talked about, which is uh, Wilhelm Reich, who yes. is a was a originally, I believe, a follower of Freud, but broke with Freud. Yes. And uh, was a very controversial, fascinating, interesting guy. Um, and there still are remnants of what's called Reichian therapy out there. Yes. And Reich, in, uh, I was very struck when reading some of his work, he used um, some sort of hands-on work to enhance the, the psychotherapy he was doing. Yeah. And he uh, at one point says that the what he called the ocular block, which mm -hmm. I, which really refers to that segment of our bodies that includes the eyes, he yeah, said yeah. that was the toughest one to change. That was the last to go. And I'm yeah. wondering, in, just in view of, of our conversation just now whether, of course, Reich died quite a few years ago, that, um, that in part that was because the brain had not been mapped particularly well at that point. And he didn't really have the tools to, to deal with that. Well, thank you very much to mention this, yes. I think um, if we are lingering in our, huh, in our reptilian and the limbic brain by reacting with over and under focusing then it's almost like the the ocular block keeps in there the amygdala our aeons um of experience which have never been really freed it it keeps stuck there and for me the emotional aspect and letting emotions and feelings rise is really an um a fundamental aspect of this eye body vision work because out of the intent for presence um, we are able i'm able i call them stories and no stories things i i experience in over and under focusing aeons back they are still held within this amygdala and fundamentally i think there is no fundamental change and i think out of consciousness of having a application of presence which is Alexander's notion of inhibition, of stopping interfering what rises. Mm -hmm. um, I can stay with the, I need to stay with the intensity, even sometimes there's more intensity, sometimes less intensity. And out of staying with the intensity, there is a transformation of the amygdala um, uh, contents and uh, this rises to the upper visual cortex and this becomes my fodder. This becomes the food for visualizing out of consciousness, mm -hmm. which is literally one brain further up. And from there I discovered there is a blueprint. Let's say there is a blueprint um, between the brain layers and the physiology of the eye. And we would like to connect out of direction with our blueprint of the eyes. And then we are really undoing in a non-doing way we are really undoing our our um, reptilian and our limbic strongholds there and i think then we are really undoing the ocular block simultaneously yet mm. we need direction to give it oomph to give it schmuckers to give it right, right. more 
more real power. So I guess I mean you could you could you could argue the mojo you could, lies there. You, right. You could argue that um, unless the ocular block is released, we we as humans are not really uh, getting our full. Um, <laughs> Potential. It, potential, <laughs> our full, uh, what's the title of Alexander's book? It escapes me. Our, uh, well, I can't even think, our, <laughs> I can't even think of it. The yeah, title of yeah. his first book, Our Supreme Inheritance, Inheritance. is yes. being compromised. Well, th- yes. I think this would be a great place to, to bring this conversation to an end. Thank uh, you obviously, much, we've been talking about some pretty... Uh, interesting stuff that may not be totally familiar to everyone who's listening. And I would commend you to visit Peter's website. We'll put a link to uh, that site and to get a copy of his book, which explains a lot of this stuff. Um, but my my guest today has been Peter Grunwald, who teaches workshops around the world uh, and also lives in Auckland, New Zealand. Peter, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much, Robert.